Welcome to Sweet Bitter, where we explore the untold history of women and queer pirates. We're your hosts, Ellie Brigida. And Lisa Charlotte. This episode, we're focusing on a specific lady pirate from ancient times. Ooh, ancient. Feels like a throwback. <laughs> Ooh, lady. <laughs> Ooh, lady. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into that, let's welcome our resident pirate expert, Elise, for a game of fact or fiction. And we knocked it out of the park last week, so no pressure, Ali. No pressure. <laughs> Let's do it again. Can you, can you recreate your success? <laughs> Go on a winning streak. We Hi, Elise. Hi. How's it going? Good. So happy to have you here, as always. I love playing fact or fiction. Let's go. What are we in for? Okay. Let's do it. Fact or fiction, did pirates really have parrots on their shoulders? Hmm. Hmm. All I can think of is, is Iago, and Jafar is not a pirate. <laughs> No. Yeah, who are the famous parrots in pop culture? Is there a parrot? There's no parrot in Peter Pan. Isn't there? You watched it more recently than me. No, I'm pretty sure I feel sure like Muppets not. Treasure Island, there's something that's not a parrot. Like it's a Muppet. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm gonna have to go with this is fiction just because I don't know how many animals they would really have on board a pirate ship because that's also like another thing to feed and take care of and I don't necessarily know if they would want that I mean I like to think that they would have a parrot like I want it in my heart but I also think it's not true but I feel like we continue to agree Ellie and so you want to just go just, with it's a fact I think it's so, fiction, so argue that it's I'm a gonna fact argue that just it's a for fact fun. because I want this segment to be interesting yeah I feel like pirates are very flamboyant and parrots add to the flamboyance of pirates. Um, they mimic whatever you say. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say facts just to contradict you, Ellie. <laughs> also to raise the stakes. Yeah, let's raise the stakes and say like they used the pirates to send messages hey. to other So now you're ships. arguing for my point. Like Ellie, we're yeah, supposed to be. I, now you've convinced me. <laughs> yeah, they're like a carrier parrot. Like, so wait, you should know. I switch back to fiction? <laughs> No, we're at just going to confuse Elise. I feel like we should make it a rule that someone has to say fact, someone has to say fiction. Just so that someone wins. fun. Yeah, true, true, true. Okay, so I am still on fiction, but I like the idea of a pirate, and I'm a pirate carrier. Fact, but I think it's probably fiction. At least let us know what the answer is. Take us out of our misery. Okay, drum roll, please. Fact. I- <gasps> what? Yes, I know. It doesn't, I would have guessed fiction a thousand percent, but. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So they were so bored on these pirate ships. There was nothing to do when you were at sea for a really long time. And they had access to these exotic birds because they were traveling around the Caribbean and to South America. And so the thought is that they would have bought them and had them on their ship just to have something to do, to train a parrot to talk. Oh my gosh. They didn't eat, they didn't eat very much. All right, so they would have had cats to to mouse the you know the ship. They would not have had dogs because dogs eat a lot, and they it was kind of like an aristocratic thing yeah. you know, to have a dog at that time. But they were really flamboyant, and they wanted something that when they docked in England, where there are no parrots, would get them a lot of attention. They could maybe even sell them in England. Wow! And they just yeah, so they were like pretty common amongst sailors, and all all pirates had previously been sailors. Blackbeard even had a pirate named Pepe. 
who was really famous. Um, he had like four pirates, but his favorite was Pepe. Oh my goodness. So yeah, pe- they had these exotic pets. They may the have pirate. also even had monkeys is another thought. They may have had oh. monkeys on the ship. Wow, I, my mind is blown. Pepe the parrot? That's on you, mascot. And that's real. Like that's not pop culture. That is a real parrot. It's in the Pepe like the legends of Blackbeard. So wow. take it, wow. you know, it's as real as any of this pirate history, quote unquote, is. Oh my goodness. I am My shook. mind has been blown. I know, right? Wow. My mind is blown. Yeah. Wow. It's like so many parrots. Well, mm-hmm. I'm I'm glad it's a fact because it's an awesome fact. <laughs> Truthfully. <laughs> Super fun. <laughs> I'm glad you took a position of fact, Lisa, because then, you know, you were correct. I even mean, you didn't think it. Me with my, yeah, forced taken fact position. I mean, it's why we should step out of our assumptions, I guess. It's a lesson for everybody in that. True. <laughs> if you had a pirate parrot, what would the pirate parrot's name be, Elise? Ooh, oh my gosh. Um, if I was a pirate and I had a parrot. So I name all my plants like really disarmingly boring names. So I have plant, my succulents are named like, and I don't mean to knock these names as being boring, but it's just like, they're not exciting as plant names because they're so common as people names. So I have plants named like Lindsay and Rob and like (laughs) Nick. And so like, I think I would name my parrot Stephanie. (laughs) Yeah. I like that it was pretty easy for you to decide. Yeah. What about you? I think I I think I would be more along the lines of the I love Pepe the parrot. So I'd like be an like, alliteration. Yeah, like Penelope. Penelope the parrot is a good name. The parrot. I was yeah, going like, for like a be, yeah, pirate pun, so like Arthur or something. Oh, nice, nice, <laughs> with, nice. With a hard R. <laughs> I love all the these parrot. parrots. So whenever we start our pirate ship, we have to get three parrots: <laughs> Stephanie, Arthur, Arthur, and Penelope. Great, and they'll be they friends. They'll be best friends or lovers. I, I mean, we can only dream. <laughs> then we'll have That's little parrot the families. <laughs> parrot pirate. That is the dream. Families. Yes. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much, Elise, for giving us this wonderful visual of all these pirates. <laughs> oh my gosh. With parrots. Oh. And it's so good seeing you. Good to and see you, talking to you. And please, yeah. somebody should um, draw us some pirate parrots if you're feeling inspired. We would love that. We love it when people send us artwork. Please send yeah, us some pirate parrots. And the thing about podcasting pirates. is like, how do you know listening right now that we don't have pirates on our show? <gasps> all three of us on oh the my Zoom goodness. Call? Like, how do you know? I love how you keep saying pirates, not parrots. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like have literal. Oh You've been yeah. saying pirates. I just let it slide. They're so close. Wait, They're and, so and close. again, we might have pirates on it's our early shoulders. In we might have pirates. We might have pirates. We could we have know. pirates we'll on our know. shoulders. You don't know. This is an audio medium. This reminds me of that, like, you know, when you're trying to put your arm around someone and you do the, like, if you were a pirate, would you keep your parrot on this shoulder or this shoulder? Hey, and that's how you get your arm around Like the them? stretch, like the stretch move yeah. at the yeah. cinema, which yeah. I just enacted out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no it's the a pirate great, one. Great. I, I feel like my first boyfriend used that on me. What? I never heard of that before. That seems it like works. an American thing. Yeah, Sweet. you do like the the shoulder that's next to you is the first shoulder, and then you're like, or would you, or would your you keep your parrot on this shoulder hey. and you put your arm around them? Yeah, your first boyfriend yeah. sounds like a smoothie. I don't know. I mean, our first kiss was after I like brutally beat him in Mortal Kombat, and I was kind of like disgusted with him, uh, his lack of skills. But then we had our first kiss. I was fifteen. Wow. <laughs> 
That's beautiful. I think so one of my first kisses was after playing DDR, so I understand, you know? Video it's games, the same. man, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're really real after DDR. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> well, thank you, Elise, for this stimulating conversation. I know everyone's going to love it. Good to see y'all. Thank you so much, Elise. We'll be back after a quick break. And we are back. So as we said at the top of the episode, this week we're kicking it season one and covering an ancient woman, a pirate named Teuta. T-E-U-T-A. Teuta. So exciting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, have as much fun as it you want like It feels like a cheer. We love her. Yeah, we love her. You may remember lawyer and pirate expert Laura Duncombe from last week. She's going to give us a quick introduction. So the first female pirates that we know of were in sort of the ancient Greek, you know, the classical Hellenistic period. And they were, broadly speaking, pirates. They were more like warlords or, you know, generals of their fleets. Um, but they were seaborne women who stole things from other people. So we like to lump them into the pirates. They were sort of the ancestor of the, you know, swashbuckling pirates that we think of when we think about, you know, the golden age of pirates, Long John Silver pirates. They sort of, these were their ancestors. So we have, you know, Tuta of Illyria. We have Queen Artemisia. And both of those women were, you know, high-ranking officials in their country who led ships and expeditions out to fight other navies. So they were very, very cool women and uh, sort of set the bar for what female piracy looked like. So Queen Tuja has this fascinating life. She's a really cool woman. She was, we think, Greek. it's kind of hard to pin down things about her. We, we get most of our stories from her from a couple of different Greek sources, and some of them contradict each other. But she ends up as an advisor to Xerxes, the Persian king. And she's like right up in his inner circle. And she knew the Greeks very intimately. And she knew that if they took the Greeks on the water, that they would lose. That, the, you know, the Persian navy was fairly new in this war and had, you know, just a couple of, of boats. And, you know, the Greeks had been sailing their whole lives. So she urged caution, said, look, let's, you know, we're already beating them on land. Let's keep doing what we're doing. It's working. And the rest of the um, war council uh, staffed by men said, like, no, let's do it. We can totally do it. Xerxes should have listened to her because they were routed um, on on sea. And she was at the, at the helm of her own ship and realized that things were going south uh, in a hurry. So legend has it that she changed her flag that she was flying. So she had a Greek flag and then beat a hasty retreat. Xerxes saw her in battle and said, oh, look, you know, my men have become like women and my women have become like men because she was doing so well. And then apparently got distracted when she was swapping her flags out and um, beating a hasty retreat. She came out of that alive. She was a survivor of, of the, the big battle. So here for Teuta being such a great soldier that she became like a man. But also I'm like, no. was she fighting like a man she or was, was she fighting, fighting like, like a, a woman? Fucking woman, Ellie. <laughs> she was fighting like a woman. She was fighting like a woman. She my was. friend Fabio, shout out to Fabio, got me a shirt for my birthday one year that said "Fight Like a Girl," and I feel like, yeah, I feel, like actually got yeah. it printed for me. What a great gift! Thanks, Fabio. There should be a shirt that says like "Fight Like Tater." Fa- yeah, "Fight Like Tater." Great. We'll put it in the merchandise store. Yes. 
So we spoke to classicist Brandon Jones, who will be our source for the rest of the episode, and he had more to say about her. The entire ancient literature on Tiuta amounts to about maybe five pages of writing. There's there's just not very much. We know very little about Tiuta. Our ancient sources on, on Tiuta are primarily Polybius, who's a Greek historiographer writing in the second century BCE, and then two Greek historiographers writing in the the second, maybe third century CE for Roman audiences. Uh, that would be Cassius Dio and Appian. Both Dio and Appian are most certainly using earlier earlier sources, and and people seem to suspect Polybius would be would be doing the same. And so we're we're at anywhere from a one hundred year to a five hundred year remove from Teuta. And whichever of those three sources we're, we're reading are writing from a, a Greek or a Roman or a Greco-Roman perspective. And so it's, it's tricky, tricky getting to the bottom of Teuta. The simplest answer is that she was uh, an RDIN queen. The RDI were a, a tribe in the central Balkans around what would now be modern Albania, maybe stretching up as far as Montenegro. And when Teuta's husband passes away around 230 or so BCE, she's left as regent and her, her son Pines is too young to rule at the time. And so she's, she's taken over more or less as queen. And in fact, the, the name Teuta in Indo-European seems to, seems to mean queen. And so it's, it's possible that, that Teuta really isn't even her, her actual name, that it's more of a, a Greek or Roman misunderstanding of queen. There are lots of good stories with this, especially where you have Greek and Roman historiographers dealing cross-culturally and cross-linguistically. So one of my favorite ones is a, a town in central Italy named Kaira, which is modern-day Chivetri. And the Greek word Kaira, Kiera, just simply means hello. And so when the... Uh, the Romans or Italians showed up, and people at the at the wall said said Kira. They they thought that that was the name, name of the town. A similar thing might have happened with Teuta, right? If you're a Roman general or ambassador, more likely one of these ambassadors that goes and meets with Teuta, and everybody's referring to her as Teuta, you assume that that is that is her name. But uh, in fact, it may have, may have just been her title. Allie, I think we need a time machine. And we need to go back in time and we need to go and get Sappho papers. We need to get Teyuta papers. Like I am done with not having enough. I'm just done. I agree. Why do we not have more information on these people? It reminds me of like Xena. Like Xena would have like this episode with Teyuta or like how Xena had an episode like about Sappho. Oh my goodness. Like it's like, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Build a hot tub time machine and we go back. Hot tub time to machine. To learn more about Sappho and Teuta, we are, I'm in, I'm in on the time machine. Okay, cool. But we do know some things about Teuta, which Brandon told us about. So what do we know about what Teuta did and what kind of time period she lived in? These Illyrian wars in which Teuta is involved take place at about 229 BCE. And this is, this is when Rome is just beginning to... Uh, have a a naval presence in the Adriatic the, and in the Mediterranean. So m- most people will place the end of the First Punic War in 241 BCE as the, the beginning of the Romans kind of looking beyond the Italian peninsula. 
putting putting this pretty newly built navy to to use at about the same time they're starting to look look out to um to Greece as well and so yeah she kind of rests right right at the beginning of of uh, Roman naval power and with the Roman naval power eventually comes the overall empire many people think of when it comes when it comes to Rome 146 BCE at least according to the the historian Sallust Rome had done away with any foreign threats and they could get rid of Medus Hostilis, the fear of, of an enemy. And so um, if we place two, 241 as the, the start of Rome trying to use their navy to, to succeed and uh, 146 as the point of them having succeeded, Teuta falls in the middle on the earlier end, but in the middle of that. She probably would have had her work cut out for her fighting a Roman navy. But it was still early enough in their empire building that she would have had a, a, at least a, some chance of, of standing up to them. It seems that she ruled, or at least she was ruling with some interaction with the Romans and the Greeks just for, just for a few years, for, for maybe 231, 230 BC, just down to 228 BCE. It seems like she did make some military excursions into Greek territory, which would have begun to get Roman attention at the time. Roman military was starting to make more contacts in the, in the Greek world at this time as they're just starting to try to build a, a Mediterranean empire. The other thing that would have gotten the Romans' attention is, is that she seemed to be building a, a small naval empire along the Adriatic coast. She's often famously referred to as a pirate, which is which is a bit of a, a tricky term in her case because it's it's much more likely that she's the head of a government that's putting together some sort of naval power that the Romans don't like, and so they claim that she's a pirate when in fact she sort of has a like a paramilitary navy that's disrupting their trade routes. I mean, I'm going to make a reference that's going to go like over your head, Ellie, about Monty Python, because every time I think about the Romans and like hating the Romans, I'm like, people's front of Judea, with a people's, with a Judean people's front, or like whichever order it is in, I never remember. I hate the Romans already. Anyway, that's all I have to say. <laughs> that's all you have to say. But I mean, and yes, you're correct, over my head, but I'm sure plenty of people <laughs> in Monty our audience Biden will understand. Out there. I yeah, yeah, we'll understand that reference. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, too, in like a historical context, right? Like, there is a connection between pirates and imperialism. Yes. Even from like the beginning of time, right? Rome is trying to build its empire, and Teuta is just fighting back against that empire and is called a pirate. Yeah, back to the way that people were living before. Yeah, it's the same thing with like groups that exist outside the government today. It's like, well, you don't agree with us, so you're terrorists, you're pirates, etc. So I'm wondering how common pirates like Teuta were in the ancient world. Yeah, there were lots of them. I guess the the most famous ones are are a group that were were working on the southern Anatolian Peninsula, modern day Turkey. Pompey the Great, by uh, sixty seven, very famously was said to have have rid the seas of these of these pirates. These pirates would have been, I think, very similar to to the Illyrian ones that which Teuta is is connected. Again, we're probably not dealing with individual acts of piracy, but who's controlling some of the naval passages. Ironically, Pompey's son ends up being labeled as a pirate uh, a generation later. He later ends up taking control of Sicily and is able to control some of the, the grain trade around there. 
and he comes into conflict with Octavian Augustus and, you know, the, the political propaganda and, and mudslinging um, turns, him, turns him into a pirate as well. So th- this type of piracy existed at least until 67 BCE, perhaps beyond then. Other types of piracy and banditry continued to flourish beyond Pompey. But it, again, a lot of it is the, the stuff of legend and the stuff of propaganda. So oftentimes a, a military leader who isn't, isn't ready to cooperate with Rome will be will be called a bandit or will be called a, will be called a pirate and we see some really interesting ones that have a, a sort of robin hood legendary feel to them so one of my favorites is this fellow bulla felix who also appears in cassius dio's roman history and bulla felix is said to have got together a, a a group of men and was going up and down the italian peninsula and and stealing from the rich and giving to the poor as, as all of the emperor's men are unable to catch him and he's tricking them through different types of disguises and, and what have you. Yeah, that, that form of, of banditry was certainly of interest to, to a Greek and Roman audience. So we see these types of legends. We see them in, um, in, com- in Roman comedy. We see them in Roman declamation, um, sort of an educational speech and rhetoric exercises. It's one of their favorite themes is that somebody's been captured by a pirate, you know, eventually returned and you have your your recognition scenes or in the case of declamation, you have interesting legal cases that come up because of that. You know, I, I think they're maybe not that different from from how we view pirates in culture today at the center of the kind of in- entertainment industry and everybody likes a good pirate film or an antiquity likes a good pirate declamation. This reminds me actually a lot of season one when we talked about Sappho and her interpretation in comedy or her interpretation in like the blowjob queen and all of the, Mm -hmm. yeah, all the ways that history and especially satire and comedy turns people into something maybe that they weren't. Yes. Right. Absolutely. So it's an interesting parallel to see, okay, well, what were these pirates we still don't even know if these people were pirates or if they just were pirates in the comedy. I just love history. It's so cool. That's all. That's all. It's so cool. And Ellie, Brandon had more me to you? say. <laughs> you with a history podcast loves history. I am. Yeah. Sure. Surprise. Wow. <laughs> Who knew? Surprise, surprise. Brandon has even more to say about this. He's also written about how Teuta was represented in ancient histories. My discussion of feminine exemplarity takes this character of Teuta, who I think is, is, is a victim of misogynistic historiography, and then to place her with a few of the positive exemplars in early Roman history. And then to look at the ways once we move into uh, a period that's a little easier for a historian to record, we start to see the the character development become more more complex and more dynamic. And so, if you have, let's say, uh, a queen like Sophonisba, who gets a, a positive Roman characterization at the beginning of Cassius Dio's Roman history, and then you have a negative depiction of someone like Teuta. By the time we get to the the dowager empresses under whom Cassius Dio would would have lived and worked as a politician we start to see a bit of a mixture between the, the Teutas and the Sophonisbas, the, the positive and the negative feminine exemplars. And so somebody like Julia Domna, who was the empress when Dio was beginning to write, 
is sometimes characterized with these somewhat fickle tendencies that Teuta was described as having, and then at other times is described as very powerful, intellectually astute, sometimes preferable to the male ruling powers that were around her. I mean, I want to say something about this, but like, honestly, all I have to say is I am very tired of hearing this at this point. Like, you know... (laughs) Yeah, halfway yep. through our second season and I'm like, man, I'm so sick of like hearing about how misogyny and patriarchy has taken these stories away from us. And I am that's it. Agreed, but that's why we're here, right? Yeah. To give a more to give a less misogynistic view. But now on I all am of so tired. I, I get it. <laughs> I get it for sure. <laughs> We're here to be a little less tired and hopefully have you listeners feel a little less tired because you can hear about these. I mean, hopefully we're making it a little bit more fun. Yeah, right? (laughs) But I agree. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what happened to her? I'll buy it. Again, it's very difficult to say because we have these, these Greeks and Romans as sources. So the characterization of her as a ruler from Polybius and then from Cassius Dio is pretty heavily misogynistic and... And she's she's characterized as being very fickle and at one moment is attacking ships and then at another moment is saying that she she's going to do whatever the Romans say. At one moment is engaging in battle with the Romans, at the next moment is fleeing battle. At one moment is ready for peace, another is not. And so if you were to read Polybius or or Cassius Dio, you would probably say that her success as a um, military strategist was was limited. And if we look at a, the larger view of history, in fact, Illyria, not just her tribe, the Ardeian tribe, but all of Illyria eventually succumbs to Rome. So in that sense, not terribly successful. In another sense, if we're talking about a small Albanian tribe that has the attention of Greek and Roman military powers and is is powerful enough that they're disrupting trade routes. Uh, it's, it's To me, it's a pretty impressive uh, story at the very least. We don't know precisely what her position with respect to this, this Pines, this child king would have been, whether she's um, a stepmother, whether she's a biological mother. That would be an important one because, you know, that's that is, in fact, the main route to her her political power. One of the areas of discrepancy across the three historiographers that uh, have extent accounts of hers is what happens to her afterwards. They all seem to be in agreement that once she loses in battle to to the Romans, she more or less backs down and, and agrees to keep her navy out of their way in one version Appian has her apologizing to Rome and saying that she won't do it again. In another, she just just kind of disappears. We don't hear anything more of her um, that in Dio's history, which is, which is fragmentary at this point. In Polybius's case, it seems that she just goes on to rule quietly and no longer has any interests in the Romans or vice versa. Uh, so we don't really know precisely how she comes into power or or what happens after her conflict with Rome. So as we were talking to Brandon, we wanted to know, how did he get interested in Teuta? She is um, such an early feminine political power. Right? We don't have, especially in Cassius Dio, his early books are um, heavily fragmented now. A lot of what we have of, of Cassius Dio comes in the form of summaries, excerpts, fragments from elsewhere, and uh, 
So your all of your Sappho scholars would have been, could be um, equally helpful when it comes to Dio studies as well. And so these these early books just don't don't have that much information about a lot of the women involved with the the beginnings of Roman Roman Empire in the regal period and then in the Republic. Anytime they appear, to me, it seems significant. And then when we find Teuta, who is just a, a, a striking figure, right, if in a Greek and Roman world where the idea of a, a female power would be preposterous, is not only gaining power, but is coming into conflict with them is, you know, in, in my my particular field, it's only it's only become a relatively recent point of study to look at women not not as like you know a, a special interest unit. You spend a day on women in Rome, or you have a particular one class that does that. But to understand that women were equal parts of the ancient world of the society and the culture there, even if the roles were different, and even if the roles were by most accounts more oppressive, but they're they're still there, <laughs> and that that obviously trickles into political history, and it's you know it's a legacy that we still still are dealing with. Like Brandon alluded to earlier, Teuta brings up a lot of questions about how we define pirate. We talk about um, gender and sex dynamics uh, in antiquity, and I think in modernity, it's important also to think of colonial dynamics, economic dynamics as well. And so Teuta, for example, who's, who's labeled as a pirate, draws that into focus for us. If she were not from Illyria, she might not be a pirate. She might be a queen. You know, the, the fact that Illyria is, is looked down upon by some of these Greek and Roman military powers affects the way, way she's viewed. In terms of piracy in, in the, the ancient world, oftentimes a pirate or a bandit is really just somebody who's living outside the accept, accepted norms. The, the, the roots of, of the word that are usually used for, for pirates and bandits in Latin, they like to use the word latro. Uh, in Greek, leistes. Then the word um, from which we get pirate, pirates, um, in pirata exists in both Greek and Latin as well. And all of these terms are, are associated with making money um, for your work. And so this, this can trickle into mercenary work. And then, and then there's a, you know, a, a small bridge from there into piracy. But it really can just be somebody who, who is not as economically well off as, as, as a Greek or Roman elite would be, who can kind of sit back and watch, watch the silver come in from the mines or watch, watch the crops grow and, and, and depend on um, a slave society to, to build that economy. And so this is another element that works into Teuta's char- characterization, right? Is maybe not a pirate as we, as we picture, you know, and the, the pirates of the Caribbean going and, and sailing and, and sacking a, one boat here or there, but somebody who uh, has put together a, a naval power and is available for hire by other presumably Illyrian tribes. So, you know, if, if she's got a, a tribe south of her that wants clear passage into the northern Adriatic, they might hire Teuta's ships to make that passage available. And as soon as she's accepting money to, to help clear that passage in the Roman or the Greek view, she's a pirate. If the Romans did the same exact thing, they would just say that they're a powerful navy. And when it comes to um, the classics and classical studies, that's one of the challenges we're, we're up against is that the stories are almost always told by the victors and 
it's the job of the social historian to to try to try to dig through material culture, dig through language, anthropology to to try to um, something a little closer to the truth. Brandon also had some recommendations of badass women to read up about ancient women who fought against Roman imperialism. If you're interested in the sort of um, the uh, uh, female political power system that stands up against Rome, Boudica, who was a, a Roman queen, might be another good one to look at down the road. And she, there's actually a little more ancient literature on Boudica from several different authors, but she um, stood up against British invaders in the, uh, the first century CE and uh, had a little more success, we think anyway, than, than Tiuta would have. So Tiuta's not alone. There are, there are other female representatives of resistance against Roman, Roman imperialism. Perhaps the most famous one would be Cleopatra. Who you know she she was in charge of a huge huge navy with Antony fought against Octavian Augustus. So depending on the perspective, you know there were probably Augustus and some of his propaganda machine probably were referring to her as a pirate as well, which again puts that you know puts that character type that Tiut has lumped into into perspective. So that's all from Brandon today, but I have a fun fact courtesy of friend of the pod Judy Gran. Well, rather like an argument that she makes, which is pretty cool. So Brandon mentioned Budaika, who is like a badass Celtic woman who was a well-known lover of women. And Judy Gran, she argues that that is where the word dyke comes from. I love that. So I'm that Judy Gran, so cool. And also just like ancient Celtic warrior lesbians. Cool. I mean, you know? we're here for that. <laughs> We, we love to see it. And I just feel like full circle. We're back to talking about people that lesbians are named after. Yeah. We're back to the root of all sapphic words. <laughs> I love it. It's great. And on that note, here's a taste of what's to come on Sweet Bitter. I love Grace O'Malley because she was a working mom pirate. You know, she had a bunch of boys and uh, I have two boys so I sort of empathize with you know it's tough to you know run a hustle when you have little kids running around. I have this sort of this mental image of her you know on a ship like with like a baby on her hip and then like sword fighting with her other hand um and that's just kind of you know mom goals for me so I'm a big fan of Grace. Grace Amani of course also was a year in Dublin Castle. She was incarcerated in Dublin Castle. She was found plundering on a on a very famous man's lands down in Munster. And she was in Dublin Castle. Now, only the most powerful and important political prisoners were ever put into Dublin Castle. Thanks for listening to Sweet Bitter. Our next episode will be out on December 6th. We're going to be taking an extended holiday break as we migrate over to Red Circle with Three Springs Media. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us. It really helps, especially written reviews on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sweetbitter. Thank you to our new Patreon supporters this week, Amanda and Leanne. We also have a new subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Paul. Thank you for letting us know who you are so we can shout you out. Sweet Bitter is an independent production by me, Ellie Brigida, Elise Knorr, and Lisa Charlotte. In partnership with Three Springs Media, our production assistant is Thea Smith, and our artwork is by Estella Illustrated. Thank you to our guests this week, Laura Duncombe and Brandon Jones. You can read more about our guests and where to find them on our website.
You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SweetBitterPod or contact us on our website, SweetBitterPodcast.com. Now we are very excited to introduce our sea shanty for this week, written by Elise with sound by Joshua. You're going to love it. Teyu, da teyu, da the fiercest in the land. When the Romans came, she made her brave stand. We do not know her name, but we know that she was strong. She raided and she plundered, cause colonialism is wrong. Teyu, da teyu, da the fiercest in the land. When the Romans came, she made her brave stand. Teyuta ruled her people and led them in the fight to kill every Roman who ever crossed her sight. Teyuta, Teyuta, the fiercest in the land. When the Romans came, she made her brave stand. Sexist historians tried to tell her tale, and for many long dark years, each and all of them failed. Her fate is still a mystery, her end is still unclear, but we still proclaim her name for everyone to hear.